Hello and welcome to episode 76 of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street, in which we will be discussing the premiere episode of She-Hulk Attorney at Law. I'm also going to be posting the August Yancey Street special today on my podcast channels. And that is going to be covering She-Hulk, actually. I'm calling it the She-Hulk Companion. It's going to be absolutely everything that I have compiled about Jennifer Walters, a.k.a. She-Hulk from Marvel Comics. And it is a lot of really cool information. So definitely check that one out if you would like further information on her character and a little bit of more insight on some information about the show as well. But again, we will be covering that first episode at the end of this podcast episode. Other than that, we do, of course, have the regular news, some really fun stuff that I am very excited to talk about, and we will also briefly talk about House of the Dragon Episode 1, which also premiered on HBO Max this past week. For our comic book picks, there are a lot of really good things that came out this past week, including Flavor Girls number 2, very easily my pick of the week, Seven Sons number 3, which comes up right behind Flavor Girls, and Daredevil number 2, which was the legacy. 650 of all Daredevil issues there have ever been. So good on, you know, Marvel for keeping interest in the character for that long, but it was, it did have some really good stories in it as well. And those are just a couple of the many comics that we're going to discuss that came out in the past week. As for comic book polls, these are comics that are coming out this week of the 24th for New Comic Book Day. Uh, there's a lot of really cool number one starting. Again, fantastic season for indie comics right now. So there's some really, really exciting indie comics coming out this week, as well as some really fun stuff from the big two. Harley Quinn's animated series is still premiering on HBO Max. No word on if that's been uh, past the test of things that are being canceled or not, but we will be discussing episode six called Joker the Killing Vote um, towards the end of this week's episode. And finally, as I already mentioned, we will be covering episode one of She-Hulk Attorney at Law. Everything that I've noticed in the episode, all of the theories, all the speculation... All the good stuff that you're looking for, I'm going to be discussing that whole episode here, um, and including some thoughts that I have on possibly where the whole season is going to be ending up at the end. So be sure to stick around for that, and also check out the August Yancey, Yancey Street special, which is going to be covering She-Hulk. It is my She-Hulk companion episode. You will have all of your She-Hulk questions answered. If they are not answered, it's because I could not find an answer for it myself. I've been working on that one for several months now, um, so I'm really excited to finally have that out for everyone to listen to. Real quick here before we get started, please feel free to join the Yancey Street Discord. There is a fresh invite link at the bottom of each episode's description. The Discord is a safe, friendly place for socialization and discussion of whatever you want, really, comics, pop culture, or otherwise. And it's also where you can go to find links or images mentioned during the podcast all in one place. You can find me most easily on social media via Instagram. My username is at Anna with the comics because my name is Anna, and hey, I've got 
a lot of comics. Uh, my podcast updates, if you want to find those, they'll be mostly on Twitter, where my username is at SavageSheGeek, because Sensational was too many letters. My website is SensationalSheGeek.Weebly.com, where I have been working on fixing up the site quite a bit so that it is still relevant in addition to the podcast, so make sure you go and check that out, including my beginner's guide to both comics and manga, covering hopefully any information that you might need to take your first steps into the world of comics or manga, including recommendations on comics, graphic novels, manga, series, etc. Uh, I also have my reading orders with commentary on appearances of various leading ladies, many of which I use to turn into the monthly Yancey Street specials, also linked all over my site, uh, and they focus on a so-far female character from the comics to study thoroughly and then expand upon in a podcast episode of their own. I try to make them pretty relevant. For example, I'm about 95% done with a Jennifer Walters She-Hulk episode, which is going to be coming out uh, for her show this August. Additionally, anything pre-2021 content-wise can be found written in the website blog for your reference, which was all before I started the podcast. Plus my podcast notes, which are basically all the content of each episode in written format, are made available on my blog as well for reading the podcast instead of listening and for those who are hearing impaired if they'd like to keep up with the podcast events as well. And you can finally find links to anywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which is most, if not all, podcast hosting apps, and also includes YouTube. On YouTube, I also post the podcast episodes in a single playlist format, if that is easier way for you to listen. And I also occasionally post action figure review videos. It has been a lot more imports in the latest videos, as I have pretty much given up on Hasbro's Marvel Legends line, uh, but I do have a big backlog of Legends videos, including a tour of our entire collection. It's a very long video tour. And soon, the HasLab Galactus, assuming that he is on his way to go alongside last year's HasLab Sentinel video. I do have a podcast Patreon. You can find it under Sensational SheGeek. It's set up for donations to support the podcast, as well as a Ko-fi, which is like a buy a creator a coffee situation. And Cash App, Venmo, PayPal are all linked on my link tree for donation towards the podcast, which should appear linked among various other fun things at the bottom of each episode's description. Uh, I do also have a Redbubble shop called SheGeek Shop, but I have been having some issues with their site and whatnot, um, so I'm working on setting up my own storefront on my site, which hopefully will be coming by the new year and will be faster with more support from listeners. Let's go ahead and get started with the news. I do have to start a little bit with a brief note on my own personal feelings of anti-capitalism because some people uh, felt the need to come into my Instagram DMs this week and give me a hard time about being an anti-capitalist who also collects things. Um, and really all that you have to say about that is you can be critical of a system that you are also forced to take part in. That's it. Um, nobody's going to be asking anti-capitalists to go live in a cave because that's the only place that there is no capitalism. That's ridiculous. You're allowed to be critical of a system that you have no choice but to take part in. 
And that's all the attention I'm going to give those honest-to-God losers. Um, but She-Hulk is up. We are obviously going to be talking about that a lot more at the end of the episode. Um, but it is going to be premiering on Wednesdays, continuing out from the 18th. So this week's episode is on... Oh, I'm sorry. I said Wednesdays, but it is Thursdays. Uh, it'll be on the 25th is the next episode. Um, really enjoyed the first one. I think for the most part, the legitimate responses people have are... Are actually very positive. If you can hear some ruckus in the background, that would be my cat. <clears throat> my cat. Uh, excuse the break there while I had to go discipline the kitten a little bit. Anyway, make sure you check out all of the good She-Hulk stuff that I'm putting out today and while we continue watching the show each week. Something that is not necessarily relevant podcast news, but something that I just generally wanted to share because it's a happy thing. Um, I've been a fan of the actor Lee Pace for a number of years now. He was uh, obviously Ronin in Gardens of the Galaxy before that. Um, he was a fantastic, he did a fantastic job um, is a, as a character in the movie Soldier's Girl, which I recommend, but I would definitely say don't watch that if you um, cry easily in movies. He's also recently in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. He was in The Fall, uh, a bunch of other stuff. So anyway, great actor. Um, in this past week, or yes, he has announced that he's actually been married, who knows when, uh, but he's been married for some time to his longtime partner, Tom Brown, executive Michael, oh sorry, Matthew Foley. Um, they are in fact married. Who knows when that happened, but good for them. Uh, and of course, we celebrate their love and are glad to have them in the queer community, etc., etc. Also very impressed that they were able to keep that one quiet, uh, having been married. So good on them. Some actually relevant good news, though, uh, surrounding the whole chaotic Warner Discovery deal. Uh, some good news has come out of that as of announced today. Warner has secured Matt Reeves and his Batman ideas in a multi-year deal. And I did get this from a Deadline article, which you can find linked in the description. But basically, uh, what they are saying is that Reeves is the first filmmaker given an overall look at uh, overall first look film deal since the Warner uh, chair CEOs and Michael DeLuca and Pamela Abdi were hired by the Warner Discovery chief David Zaslov uh, to be in charge of the film division. In addition, Reeves has re-upped with the Warner Brothers Television Group and Chairman Channing Dungy. Dungy, I don't know, where he is also working with the Batman spin-off series, The Penguin with Colin Farrell. That series had apparently been reported before it was cancelled, so thank goodness, I mean, Colin Farrell would have been fine either way. But a uh, good thing that people are really looking forward to that, so a uh, good thing that actually has not been cancelled. And of course, we are all very happy that the Matt Reeves Batman franchise is, it would seem, safe from all of these merger cancellations. Um, they're also saying here that uh, those two uh, heads, those two CEO and chairs, DeLuca and Abdi, they are hoping to see Matt Reeves grow into the kind of cornerstone filmmaker that Todd Phillips has been with the Hangover and apparently Joker franchises and what Clint Eastwood, they say, has been at the studio forever. So hopefully that is a very sturdy future for Matt Reeves and his Batman projects at Warner Brothers. 
Also, some very exciting news today. Uh, it was announced that the Red Sonia movie, which has been kind of up and down with production, is actually about to start filming, and they have a new star, and that would be Matilda Lutz is going to be playing Red Sonia, aka the She-Devil with a sword. Um, also, we have two more casting announcements that were actually made today as well. Wallace Day and Robert Sheehan, who... Um, I'm not, I'm not familiar with Ms. Day, but Mr. Sheehan, uh, he was in the Umbrella Academy, he was in Misfits. If you know either of the characters he plays in those, that crossover is enough to get you to where he is, who he is. Um, but they have been cast, uh, Ms. Day has been cast as apparently Sonia's wicked half-sister, Anesia, and Sheehan as a character named Dragon. Um, now, I... Fancy myself a pretty solid, decently decent Red Sonia fan. Uh, Dynamite Comics has been owned, has had her, uh, has owned her rights for a, a little while, a couple of years at least now. Um, it's kind of bounced around. She was obviously originally a Marvel creation uh, out of Conan comic books. Things have changed a bit since then. Um, her being a Dynamite property has been an interesting thing, uh, because as this movie is being produced, I'm looking into all of this Red Sonia lore and finding that there really isn't that much Red Sonia lore. Um, there really seems to be, uh, it really seems to be more that when you get a new Red Sonia series, it is based off of what the creators wants to do with her, rather than any kind of solid origin story, um, uh, there's here and there there's a couple of things like uh she gets her powers from a patron goddess um she's obviously she devil with a sword her chainmail bikini obviously very famous there's these themes that go from story to story always will stick with red sonia her appearance her title more or less are always going to be the same and um where she's from locations like that they're kind of repeated across her I want to say discography, but her appearances. Um, but aside from that, there doesn't really seem to be a ton of, like, characters and things that appear. My personal best guess for who the Robert Sheen character is going to be, Dragon, in the 20... I just had to go back and check, but in the 2019 Red Sonia series, which was... It was pretty good. It had its flaws, they all do, but it was pretty good. Um, there is a character, Dragon, uh, that is spelled G-R-A-G-A-N. So it just doesn't have the Y in there. But he is, he calls himself Dragon the Magnificent, uh, rule, Emperor of Zamora, Ruler of Kings, and Divinely Ordained Master of the World. So you kind of get a little bit of his attitude there. Um, in this series, I believe for the whole series, Sonia spends it um, going up against him because he is just taking over all the lands, including the lands that she is from, and things are just generally going really bad because he's a terrible king, um, and she takes him down. So that could potentially um, be who he is. However, I can't seem to find anything about Anisia, um, A-N-N-I-S-I-A, the character who Wallace Day is apparently going to be playing that is described as her wicked half-sister. So um not sure about that one it's possible that could be somebody who similar to dragon could be based off of a character from the comics from a certain run um 
I don't personally know of any series where Red Sonia has had any kind of sister. Uh, but again, I have only been reading her for less than 10 years, so <laughs> I could be very much wrong. She has a pretty extensive history. Um, other things that we know about this project, we know that Joey Soloway and Tasha Huo scripted the movie and it is also starring Michael Bisping, Martin Ford, Eliza Mantegu, Mantegue maybe, Manal Elfichery, and Katrina Durden. I'm sorry if I butchered those names. Um, and the director is MJ Bassett of Solomon Kang. And what they have to say about this project, they say, I've wanted to make a Red Sonia movie since I was a teenager. She has been a powerful presence for me and a character that I've always wanted to bring to the screen with my own voice and vision. When I met Matilda Lutz, I knew she had all the magic I was looking for and could see the complexity and depth she would bring to Sonia. So that is all very good. Uh, other things this week, we had a trailer. Actually, I think it was about a week ago. Um, we had tra the first trailer for the Wednesday show, I believe it is, on Netflix. Um, it actually looks very, very good, which is very nice to see. We are... Uh, going to be starring Jenna Ortega as Wednesday Adams. Luis Guzman is her father Gomez. Catherine Zeta-Jones is her mother Morticia. We apparently also have George Bursia as Lurch. Christina Ricci is returning as a undisclosed role. Uh, Google is telling me that Gwendolyn Christie plays a character called Larissa Weems. Uh, and somebody named Georgie Farmer is a guy named... Ajax. Uh, so that's very cool. This series is going to end up being the, what, third Adams, no, fourth Adams family iteration, if you count animated. I don't know. Uh, I want to, I want to say it's the third live action Adams family kind of team that we've had. Um, a lot of people are saying, oh, they have such big shoes to fill, going back and referencing um, the Adams Family that was from the 90s, when in fact they were the second Adams Family. The original Adams Family is from the 60s with the fantastic uh, Carolyn Jones. And um, Gomez was... Da -da 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 -da. Give me like a second. John Aston apparently. Is he related to Sean Astin? No, because he's American. Sean Astin's British, I think. Whatever it is, anyway. Oh, shoot, Sean Astin is his son. T-I-L. The things you learn on this podcast. <laughs> In any case, the Wednesday trailer does make it look very good. It is going to be more violent than the previous Adams Family things, which is pretty stupid to say because the previous Adams Family um, iterations were definitely not violent. Um, they were kooky and a bit spooky, but violent is not how I would describe them. So any amount of violence is going to be more violent. Um, I still think it looks great. I think that's a nice change of pace. Give it some actual, you know, haunted vibes. Fantastic. Uh, last bit of news here that I wanted to go over revolves around House of the Dragon, which did premiere on Sunday night on HBO. I think I said earlier HBO Max. It is just HBO, uh, but it is available on HBO Max after the episode premieres. Um, as someone who does not have any interest in reading the George R. R. Martin books, I tried. His writing style is not for me. Um, this was fine. Um, I have one major critique, which I'll get to in a second. Um, but the things that I liked about it 
you know, great costumes, obviously. Um, budget went well towards CGI and getting actors trained and uh, music and costuming and everything, so that's great. Uh, Matt Smith does a fantastic villain, although I was laughing in that brothel scene, which I don't think you're supposed to be laughing at because it was just so... It caught me off guard. <laughs> um, he does make a very convincing convincing villain but my my major critique and my minor critique my minor critique extremely boring dialogue absolute snooze of talking um way too much into the bureaucracy of things um when they probably could have figured out some more palpable way of talking about all that um the thing that i have as a major critique was the uh let's call it murder birth <laughs> Um, that is something that they probably shouldn't have put in there, to be honest, for a couple of reasons. Uh, no, I don't think anybody goes into a Game of Thrones episodes actually expecting to see a Saw movie. Like, we know some things happen. It's kind of like the, um, the, 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 the molestation scene of Sansa not something they really should have put in there. Uh, kind of on the same level of the, as that. You know, you don't sign up to watch the show to see that kind of thing happen, right? You 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 know this is a Game of Thrones property. Certain things are obviously going to happen. That's not quite... That's not quite it. <laughs> same goes for that scene in the main series with Sansa. That was not something they needed to put in there at all. Um, but anyway, uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, skip... Uh, if a scene starts to horrify you, just skip the next few minutes because it'll only get worse. Um, <laughs> but anyway, CGI was good. Dragons were good. Um, I feel like I'm going to hate most, if not all, of the characters by the end. So I can't really say if I'm going to keep up with this all the way, but it it's at least got me into episode two. If that whole Saw movie vibe becomes an issue, I'm just not going to bother watching it because that's not what I'm here for. In this week's comic book picks discussion, these are comics that came out the week of the 17th of August. I think actually all of these things I read managed to read on time, so go me. Uh, what we're going to be covering, a lot of them are very brief because there is quite a few. We have Strange number 5, Captain Marvel number 40, Flavor Girls number 2, Daredevil number 2, aka Legacy 650. New Mutants number 28, Seven Sons number 3, Immortal Red Sonia number 5, X-Men 13, True Cult number 1, Avengers whatever it is BC number 1, and uh, Death to the Mutants number 1, because I can't remember if I covered it another week or not. I'm pretty sure it only just came out, right? So I wouldn't have. Okay. Um, but for some reason I can't remember if I... Whatever. Uh, starting off with Strange number five. This is the, the first Clea solo series at Marvel, which there goes my cat again, uh, which is, for whatever reason, all focusing on Steven, who she broke up with in the comics several years ago. She has been called his ex-wife for quite some time now, but uh, for whatever reason, they're ignoring that part. And they're just kind of having her be all simpy, wifey for lifey, and that is not <laughs> what her character is. But anyway, um, just major uggs with that. But predictably, you know, spoiler alert, I guess, but the Harvest Man is predictably Stephen Strange. Um, that was pretty easy to figure out as soon as they called him the Sorcerer Supreme of Death, and then kept saying that Strange belongs to Death now. That just 
was so obvious. And then in this most recent issue, number five, they started showing his haircut in a very Doctor Strange way. Like, oh, come on. This was, it was very clearly him. <laughs> um, but what was good about this issue, because it wasn't all about Stephen, uh, Clea does have a chance to go off with Moon Knight, which is actually a series being written by Judd McKay as well as this. Uh, so that kind of made sense. She goes off with Moon Knight to ask him about how he was returned from the dead, um, which obviously has to do with Khonshu, so they have a little fun team up. Um, Clea almost gets to take full credit for her skills until she says that her name is Clea Strange, which then goes back to just connecting her to Strange again. Can we just have an issue where she just doesn't, like, she can take credit for her own stuff and not mention and not talk about Steven? She doesn't, her world does not revolve around Steven. It hasn't in a long time. It's just very irritating to me. Anyway, Captain Marvel number 40 was fine. Um, the art was interesting to me because it kind of like fluctuated. Um, and I'm pretty sure there was only one artist, but I could be wrong about that. Basically, in this issue, Carol is still on trial for magical crimes or crimes against magical communities, I guess is what it was. Uh, she does manage to beat the spell and find her way out of the bar with no, not the bar with no name. Um, is it the bar with no name? The magical bar in Marvel Universe. I can't remember. But uh, she finds her way back to New York through there. Um, the way she did that was pretty crazy. Uh, there was a very brutal scene of her using her powers full force and burning the flesh and tendons and everything off of the bones of her arms. Very brutal. Can't really believe they put that in there, but it was kind of nice to see Carol do something truly badass. Um, and then she winds back up in New York with, like, monsters and stuff. No binary in this issue as well, which I was under the impression we were going to be getting that against, um, L'Oreal, right? Um, and speaking of binary, at this point in this arc, I am almost convinced that she is either going to disappear off into space or end up being reabsorbed back into Carol, um, just because it seems that in a couple of issues it's just going to be completely forgotten that she ever existed. So a little bit disappointing there, um, but I guess maybe she was a little bit too similar to characters like Singularity to kind of keep her around um, a little bit longer. And again, my cat is doing something chaotic. Flavor Girls number two is a three-issue series, and this is the second book. I am really, really into it. Uh, we get a big training montage. We get to learn a little bit about a couple of the characters and their lives uh, before, during, and after this attack by the Agarthians. Um, but then we get to see like some really cool lore for this world that this whole series takes place in. Uh, Sarah learns of the Mamrea, which is the mother tree, which connects all life on the planet. It's why the evil um, alien Agarthians attacked Earth. They are looking for the tree, but they don't have a clue where it is. Uh, so lots of lore here. The Agartha want to kill the Mamrea to destroy all life on Earth, and to do that they must find secret hidden relics, which help the Mamrea hide herself to her and give power to the fruit guardians, the flavor girls. The Mamorea can send them anywhere on the planet. So in this issue, they are sent to Siberia, where the Agarthians just discovered another one of those hidden relics. Uh, we meet one of the four generals of the Agarthian army called Tetarchs, which seems a pretty um, Russian. It seems very, this is starting to feel very much like uh, Axis powers versus um, 
alliance, you know, it's, it's very much World War II vibes. Um, but there's also, it's a kind of short issue because there is a second story in it called The House, which is apparently based off of a 1977 Japanese film um, and is kind of like a fun, spooky story that the Flavor Girls kind of prance through. It's very cute. Daredevil number two, again, is uh, the 650th issue, their solo issue of Daredevil comics, so it's a little bit of a celebratory one. They have the main story, of course, and then they have an Anna story, her being a really important creator in the history of Daredevil and of specifically Elektra comics. And then there is a one-page mini Marvel story as well. For the main story... Um, the train that was blown up in the last issue turns out to have been out of service. Still makes a massive mess in New York City, uh, takes a lot of people out. Goldie, who caused all of this, ends up coming and talking to a somewhat crippled Matt slash Daredevil, because he obviously knows Matt's identity as Daredevil or Daredevil's identity as Matt, either way. And he tells him that he's been using his powers for their entire friendship, which was since college, in order to make sure that he becomes the daredevil the world needed him to be. Very, like, what? Big, like, it's, it's a cool, it's a bit of a reveal, but it's like, uh, Goldie's powers are basically, he can say things and they happen. Um, so, so they could do, like, some flashbacks to their time in college. Um, when Elektra's father gets killed, and all this, all all the stuff that Goldie is doing, making Daredevil, making Matt at the time as it was in college, go through all of this stuff with his powers, um, is because there is a voice in his head telling him to do so. Uh, you, now the question, of course, is what is the voice? Who is the voice? And obviously, you want to say, oh well, he's just crazy. Well, it's not that. He can't just be insane because the voice is telling him things that he couldn't possibly know, um, like Matt's identity. Um, and you see stuff when he first sees Matt, he sees him like an angel. And it's like, it's this wild, like weird prophetic thing that this guy Goldie has been living with is, since he's known Matt. Um, and he's basically like, um, I know I talked about last week Exodus and like the Church of Hope and the Mutants. This is Goldie and the Church of Matt Murdock and Daredevil. <laughs> um, like he's he's on that level of like, my lord, I have set up your life for you. Like I don't know how else to even describe that. Um, so so what is the voice? Also, um, we have it revealed that Matt is about to go marry Electra so that the two of them can become leaders. I think it's the fist actually the becoming leaders of, not the hand. Um, and they can kind of take all of that down from the inside. The Anocenti story was about low level or rather low level members of a crime family that have to do the cleaning and whatnot. Um, they end up making friends with Daredevil because they happen to end up in similar places when the family is told, um, uh, the cleaners, I guess, part of the family told to take this guy's hand and frame him as killing himself. Daredevil ends up giving them a hint. They have the right hand. This guy was a lefty, which the cops know, but the boss doesn't. He tells them you can make your play now and use this to get out. It's kind of a fun little story. And then the mini Marvel story is just a fun little spoof thing with um, Bullseye. New Mutants 28 wraps up the arc of Ileana and Madeline Pryor going to Limbo to try and pass off ownership of Limbo to Madeline. They do manage to do that successfully uh, because it turns out that 
everything that's going on now in limbo causing issues is due to a magic uh, from the future one who uh, kept control of limbo uh, she ends up being the like antagonist here um, they take her out and when they do that Ileana receives the missing piece of herself and she gets disconnected from limbo entirely now she doesn't jump through limbo anymore with her discs she goes somewhere else and her powers are based in her not in a connection to Limbo. Also, we get a new costume and a complete Magical Girl costume change sequence, um, which was absolutely beautiful. I can't believe I had never thought about it before. Ileana is a Magical Girl. Uh, I love that. Seven Sons number three. Uh, this continues to be stellar. This is going to be of seven issues. This issue goes into the idea of what happened to other religions when the seven were prophesized and then born. The non beliefs of the non seven religions are legal, but their followers pretty much are persecuted and can't really practice their own religion due to lack of resources. One quote from this comic is, Diversity is an immutable human quality that drives change and progress. And that is a very good point here. Uh, the issue mostly follows Delph, who was the last of the seven to be killed, well, the six to be killed. Um, and he was possibly the closest to Ep, who is the one that we see in the first issue, rises three years after his death. Delph finds that Ep actually had many, many secrets and snuck out of the compound regularly. He follows Epp's trail to Stanford and a set of professors with a philosophy theory. It leads him to a printing press where the owner is suspicious of him being from the government, um, but he is definitely up to something, and we'll have to wait for the next issue to find out what Epp learned from this dude at the printing press. Red Sonia number five continues to have excellent... <sighs> Excellent legs and just not really panning out the way that it could be based on that. Uh, specifically in this issue, the art is tragic. The expressions on Sonia's face make absolutely no sense in context with what is happening at any point in the story. In this issue, Sonia has taken the man she found, Lancelot, to the Abyssal River. Abyssal? Abyssal River? Which will apparently heal his mind and help them on their quest. The river also frees her from the cursed chainmail top, but then the spirit of the river arrives and demands payment, uh, and Sonya ends up having to put the chainmail top back on to save herself and Lancelot, and the issue ends with them going off together as a team to continue their quest. I have X-Men number 13 on here, but I genuinely don't remember what happened in it, so... My bad, I guess. True Cult number one, uh, a fast food worker of 15 years finds the perfect robbery job just down the street from his working place. Uh, then it turns out that he was witnessed and the item that he stole from a delivery truck on the site was belonging to a basically cult of Satan, apparently. And the girl who witnessed him all do it all, uh, she lies to the cops for him and then asks for a job at his uh, burger place flipping burgers. Uh, so she's more than likely going to want something out of this. Not to mention uh, whatever it was that he took from the delivery truck truck that the Satanists now want. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, Avengers 10 million or whatever BC, uh, really bad writing. I was just in it to see how they're going to explain the fact that Thor has, they're trying to say Thor has two mothers. 
and it's a really bad explanation, to be honest. Basically, Gaia, his mother, uh, gets pregnant by way of Odin, and then when Thor is born, he has something happening and he starts to die. So the phoenix takes him and burns the infection out of him. That's it. That's why they say that she's his mother, too. Uh, more like godmother, if anything. It's super weak, if you ask me, but whatever. Finally, uh, Axe, Avengers X-Men Eternals, Death to the Mutants. Basically, the quote-unquote good Eternals are helping the mutants break into the base here where they need to go to take down the quote-unquote bad Eternals. Um, and they do so lovely. It's very satisfying, to be honest. Also, it looks like they are planning on outing the Eternals' big secret about rebirth, which is every time their machine... Um, resurrects one of them it does it by taking the life force of a random human so um that's i mean and they're trying to be hypocritical about the mutants having re like regeneration come on come on guys come on it's obviously how this is going to end is that's going to be revealed and then they're going to be in like even worse trouble than they tried to get the mutants into bada bing bada boom whatever this week's comic book polls are comics that are coming out this week, week of the 24th. As usual, this is not all comics that come out uh, in this week. You can go to your local comic book shop or look outline to see the full list of comic book releases. They're just things that I personally am interested in getting myself if I can. Um, as And also, as usual, I'm going to be going through and reading the solicitations for the first issues and uh, any other ones that I just happen to be quite excited for, but uh, kind of doing a little bit less on things that are ongoing. So starting off with what I might be hopefully most excited for, we'll see how it goes, Damage Control number one from Marvel Comics. This is uh, a throwback to the original Damage Control series, which was by Dwayne McDuffie, um, which you'll hear a bit more about him in a little bit. And you'll also hear about, more about him if you check into the uh, She-Hulk companion podcast that I will also be putting out today for the She-Hulk show and literally anything you could possibly want to know about her from the comics. Uh, so Damage Control is going to be a fun throwback series. It's supposed to be a comedy kind of thing, so let's see what you think based off the solicitation. Marvel's unsung heroes finally get sung. After the mega-powered battles and Hulk-level catastrophes, Damage Control is always there to clean up the mess and get things back to normal. But Damage Control is much more than just a glorified cleanup crew, and this new series will pull back the curtain and reveal the secret inner workings that were previously only available to people with clearance level 8. And we'll witness it all through the eyes of Gus, a fresh-faced, eager newcomer to the company who has no idea how chaotic his life is about to become. Adam F. Goldberg and Hans Rydionov team up with Will Robson to take you into the secret labyrinth of damage control, where it's totally common to run into familiar faces like Moon Knight, Nightcrawler, She-Hulk, and more, plus a second story by damage control creator Dwayne McDuffie's they put mixed spouse, which I think is pretty funny. Charlotte Fullerton as the damage control crew must clean up after the Infinity Gauntlet. This will also be the 16th issue of Damage Control that there has ever been, and we have a variant by Will Robson. For Dwayne McDuffie's legacy's sake, I hope they do this very well. 
Cold number one is coming from Source Point Press by Michael Patrick Rogers and Federica Manson. In a modern-day Ebenezer Scrooge-esque tale, a cruel old man named Homer goes ice fishing with his dog. The man is desperate to resolve the guilt that burns deep down in his conscience. Homer went fishing for forgiveness, but all he caught was hell. Emmet number one is from AWA by Ian Grody and Lee Yishan. It says, Welcome to the Brooklyn Through the Looking Glass, where a golem with benefits, a spiraling genie, a demon who feeds on bad vibes, and a mischievous mermaid collide with heartbroken, hard-living, and hype-obsessed humans. Lesser Evils is a hilarious pop culture-filled universe that, lesser, oh, that explores what intimacy, spite, selflessness, selflessness, and friendship mean today. Episode 1, Emmett meets Lydia Lowe, an artisan potter who goes on a bender after a bad breakup. Then, in anguish and anger, she accidentally conjures up a golem from clay in her Bushwick studio. Enter Emmett, a golem with benefits. He makes a mean cocktail, is handy around the house, and will help Lydia exact revenge with a vengeance. This issue has variants by Jonathan Bartlett and Carolina Rodriguez Funmayer. Minor Threats number one is another Marvel comic. This is by Patton Oswalt, Jordan Blum, and Scott Hepburn. Actually, it is not a Marvel comic. I'm busy thinking about Modoc. That was a show. Uh, no, this is a Dark Horse comic. Uh, by Patton Oswalt, Jordan Blum, and Scott Hepburn. It says, It's hard out there for a supervillain, not the world, conquerors, chaos engines, or arch nemeses, but the little guys, the career criminals, the ones who put on uniforms, knock over jewelry stores, and get tied to telephone poles before the hero swings off to face the actual big bad. Times are tough for costumed crooks, and they're about to get much worse. The psychotic, the psychotic stick man has done the unthinkable and murdered Kid Dusk, sidekick to Twilight City's premier crime the Insomniac. The Insomniac's teammates, the Continuum, are tearing Twilight apart, turning it into a terrifying police state, desperate to capture the sick man and stop the Insomniac from crossing that final line in which he may never come back from. Caught in the middle are the small-time C-list villains, finding it impossible to pull jobs or even walk down the street without being harassed by these heroes. With the bounty onto the stick man's head, former villain Playtime decides to put together a ragtime team of equally disgruntled supervillains to take down the stick man and kill him, them <laughs> and kill him themselves, leading her on a dark journey into the criminal underbelly she's trying so hard to escape. This issue has variants by Christian Ward, Scott Hepburn, and Mike Mignola. From DC Comics is a one-shot called Olympus Rebirth, with variants by Tula Lotte and Lee Weeks. After years of bitter and violent conflict, the Greek pantheon of gods stands united and welcome their latest goddess, Hippolyta of Themyscira. Due to her heroic efforts in the mortal realm, the formal queen has earned her rightful place among the gods and plans to use her newfound powers to take care of her Amazon sisters from beyond. Little does she know, some of the gods are wary of her new of the new future Hippolyta brings and will do just about anything to stop it. Join the Wonder Woman writing duo of Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad, along with artist Caitlin Yarsky in her DC debut, for an unforgettable new adventure on Mount Olympus. It's only the beginning of many exciting things to come for Wonder Woman and her world. I greatly recommend this because I love Caitlin Yarsky's art. Tales of the Human Target number one is another DC comic by Tom King with art by Mikkel Janin, Kevin McGuire, 
Rafael Albuquerque and Greg Smallwood, with covers by David Marquez and Jorge Jimenez. Building on the most critically acclaimed series of the year, Tom King and four of comics' top artists tell the series of what happened, tell tales of what happened, before Chance drank Luther's potion. Chance teams up with fan-favorite members of the JLI and four connecting mysteries that lead them with to that fateful day when one of them will kill the human target. End after end number one. Uh, by from Vault Comics by Tim Daniel, David Andre, and Sunando C. Uh, with variants by Liana Kengas, Jacob Phillip, Phillips, Ming Doyle, and Jason Sean Alexander. Life is nothing if not a series of endings. School, job, friendships, love, until the end. Walter Willem's end was fast and unexpected. His was an unremarkable life. So, how is it that his story continues as cannon fodder in an endless war waged against an insatiable darkness hellbent on consuming all existence? And is Walter right in believing he's arrived in the midst of this titanic battle as the one destined to finally end it? That's the tale of End After End. Public Domain number three is coming from Vault Comics. Sorry, Chip <laughs> Chip Comics. Coming from Image Comics by Chip Zarsky. Um, I really, really love this one, so I'll read the short little solicit, which is written by Chip, just to make it more fun. Big Things Happen, featuring the fan-favorite new character, Dee Donovan. That's her on the cover. I think I have a thing for powerful women. It has a lot to do with stuff that happened to me as a child. I don't really want to get into it here. <laughs> That's the solicitation. Samurai Sonia number three is coming from Dynamite Comics by Jordan Clark and Pascal Cuano, with variants by Liri Lee, Pascal Cuano, Zulema Scott, uh, Laviana. Lavina, sorry, Clayton Henry, and a cosplay cover. Sins of the Black Flamingo, I absolutely adore. We're kind of getting issue three of five this week from Image Comics by Andrew Wheeler, Travis Moore, and Tamara Bonvillain. We're also getting Axe Judgment Day 3 of 7 from Karen Gillen and Valerio Shitty over at Marvel. Yes, that's his last name. Covers are by Mark Brooks, Alex Horley, David Nakayama, Dan Jurgens, Peach Romoko, Scotty Young, and my favorite, I'll like pretty much all covers he does, Lucas Wernick. Grim number four uh, is by Stephanie Phillips and Flavio Armentaro for Boom Studios. This week we have variants from Jenny Frizen, Simone DeMeo, and Morgan Beam. This is a really fantastic one as well. And finally, Harley Quinn number 21, we have Tax... Task Force XX Chapter 4 by Stephanie Phillips and Simone Buonfantino, with variants by Derek Chu, Ryan Sook, Megan Wang, and Zhu Orzu. The latest episode of the Harley Quinn animated show was uh, from this past week. It was episode 6, titled Joker, The Killing Vote, and predictably was a spoof of uh, the Batman The Killing Joke. So... Um, it was actually very funny. Uh, we, we know where we start here. Joker is a family man. Um, he now has, uh, stepkids and a wife and a home in the suburbs, and he has issues with the local PTA moms. Uh, this one in particular, uh, she, I guess, is in charge of some stuff, and she keeps the bilingual immersion program at the school limited to a certain number of students. Uh, this year she made it so that her kids would get in, and not the Joker's kids, uh, or stepkids, who, uh, are bilingual 
bilingual themselves, so he's very upset about it, and he finds out the only way to change it is to actually be the mayor and make the change yourself. So he runs for office on the platform of do like Joker do and uh, get more bilingual immersion program, you know, resources, <laughs> uh, stuff like that. It's, it's actually very cute. Um, I have some fun like Easter egg type things here, references to other stuff. Obviously the opening montage that they put in like a show style uh, Joker and his new family is a riff on the classic family sitcoms like Full House. Um, they even use the font, I think, of Full House. <laughs> the song they have in that intro, Wait Till They Get a Load of Us, or Wait Till They Get a Load of Us, it apparently features several lines taken from uh, previous Joker appearances. Uh, there is obviously the spoof of, or the reference to the Joker dance from the Joker movie that he does. Uh, he references Reservoir Dogs when one of the goons shoots the other goon, and after the robbery, stating, Damn it, Jerry, I said we're not doing the stupid Reservoir Dogs thing. Or is it Gary? I don't know. Uh, Gordon calls Barbara a Joe bro, which they say is likely a reference to Bernie bro, a term used for supporters of a sort of, uh, this thing that I took this from says socialist politician and former presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, <laughs> mildly socialist. Uh, the Joker's parade is inspired by the one depicted in the Batman 1989 movie with the big balloon clown and the purple and green suit. His goons use money. His uh, goons use guns to fire money at people the same way that the Joker does uh, during the parade in that movie. Uh, his slogan, like Joker do in his mayoral campaign, is a callback to the last episode, uh, the '83 or not the last episode, the third episode, uh, the '83rd annual Villy Awards, where he sings that as his opening number to host the Villies, and then the ending confrontation uh, has. Two-Face trying to kill Joker at an abandoned amusement park. Gordon saves him, and then Joker stops Gordon from killing Two-Face. Obviously, direct, almost one-to-one -one parody of the killing joke. Um, except it's kind of switched up, because Joker is not the antagonist. He's like the hero, kind of. <laughs> Uh, and then the episode ends, obviously, with the Joker as mayor, and Harvey and I Harley and Ivy roll back into Gotham and discover this, much to their mis dismay. They've only been gone for, like, two days or something, and all of this happened. Um, so, pretty funny. And yes, that was a pretty quick rundown of the episode, because I'm about to talk about She-Hulk, and that is going to take a lot of energy. Let's talk episode one of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. This episode premiered on Disney Plus on Thursday the 18th. It was 38 minutes long and it was titled A Normal Amount of Rage. This little discussion that I'm doing is going to be found originally in episode 76 of my regular podcast. I'm also going to be posting this segment in the end of my uh, August Yancey Street special, which will be out today as well. Um, and this is going to be covering, well, it's going to be titled The She-Hulk Companion because it is going to be covering absolutely all of the information that I was able to scrounge up from the internet about Jennifer Walters, aka She-Hulk. So make sure you check out that entire special episode as well. But for now, this is going to be covering just episode one of the live action show. Uh, there's also going to be a link for merch if you're into merch. I found a link for official show merch that you can find in the description of this episode. 
So starting off here, uh, we start off the episode with Jen practicing one of her lawyer speech arguments, opening or closing arguments, who knows, in front of Nikki and Buzz, who they call Dennis because that is his actual name. Nikki, it turns out, is not fake. That was my theory. She is a paralegal in their office, but I'm feeling that there's something else that'll be a twist for her character, or rather, I hope. And obviously she knows that Jen is a Hulk now too, since this episode starts with her already as a Hulk, and then we get a flashback to the story of how we got to today. Now my thoughts about Nikki right now, if she's a paralegal, is she going to be the show's Angie Huang, uh, who is a psychic paralegal who works for the law office of the law offices of Jennifer Walters in the comics. As for Buzz, he doesn't seem to be really an enemy at all, just kind of like a just kind of an annoying co-worker. They're clearly friendly, whereas he was awful to her in the comics. Um, but I guess if he was like that IRL, he probably would not have made it that far as a lawyer in a professional setting. It's also interesting that we're starting off here with Jen going up against GLK and H in this first episode, which is something that the trailers led us to not suspect at all. She likely will end up working there, though, and that will be where we run into all the other superpowered people, yada yada yada. The flashback to her getting her whole powers takes us a few months back to a car trip with Bruce. Obviously, the tone of one of the biggest changes from the comics here is that she gets her is how she gets her powers or rather how she gets Bruce's blood into her system. In the comics, Jen is going up against gangster Nick Trask at her job, so a couple of his goons come along and shoot her in front of her house in a drive-by. Bruce happens to be visiting, and in the emergency situation, he is forced to use his own blood to give her a transfusion to save her life. They likely made this change because it is pretty sketchy doctor shit to have Bruce do that in the show, but I still think the choice to do it the way they did is still a little bit odd. The car crash, though, was caused by a ship from Sakaar, but it ended up looking like we aren't actually going to see more about it until the series is over and Bruce goes on to appear in something else, which I guess makes sense. Uh, you know, they don't want the whole series to be about Bruce and all his BS, but I was still kind of hoping that there would be some paternity lawyer jokes surrounding him and Jen, although I guess we can get that in the future as well. So anyway, but I guess one thing that we can take away from the ship appearing uh, here is that they really, really don't like Bruce slash the Hulk because they obviously did not stop to help when his car went off the cliff. So is this Grandmaster? Um, he was ruling Sakaar, but not anymore. Is this Syrah, uh Scar's mother, or is this Scar the child of Syra and Hulk? I don't know if even Marvel knows right now. They're just giving us a little tease. But before the crash, we do hear Bruce telling Jen about the device on his wrist, which is basically a Hulk inhibitor to prevent him from hulking out if anything too crazy happens. So when they crash, the inhibitor breaks, of course, causing him to tell Jen not to get too close. When she comes over to help him out of the wreckage, she cuts her arm, his blood gets on hers, she transforms. Next thing you know, she wakes up in a forest in the middle of the night. Dazed and confused, she finds a honky bar and goes to get cleaned up in the bathroom. There are some girls out for a party who stumble into the bathroom and see her. It's really a quite touching scene about women supporting women as they go in on her for a total cleanup makeover. Is it cliche? A bit. Cheesy? A bit. Freaking enjoyable? Completely. 
And it does make sense. Uh, it, it's sadly realistic <laughs> when the next scene is her trying, Jen, trying to get her bearings outside the bar. And then she is catcalled and creeped on by a trio of dudes who are, of course, much larger than her. They must have told one of these guys to project real, you know, molestation vibes because he wasn't even smiling. He was just like leering true stalker stuff. But anyway, um, they won't leave her alone. So of course the Hulk comes out of her. And unfortunately, before she can kick their asses, uh, she is taken out cold by Bruce's Hulk. This next time she wakes up, by contrast, she is in paradise or Mexico specifically at a base Tony left to Bruce. It is the same base that he used to change himself into smart Hulk for the first time. Jen takes a moment to wander through the house before discovering her cousin in the basement where there's a whole lab set up uh, and smart Hulk is down there himself as well. Notably, we do see a partially destroyed Iron Man mask as Jen goes throughout the bungalow, making it pretty clear whose house this was originally. Jen talks to Smart Hulk, as he calls himself, and we find that apparently both Jen's parents are still alive. This is super noteworthy because from the comics, the death of Jen's mother at the hand of Nick Trask agents is a major turning point in not only her life, but that of her father, Sheriff Walters. Now, I do have to pause here and add that they changed this continuity to say that she died in a drunk driving accident during the end arc of Sensational She-Hulk, but I like to think that both can be true. Uh, the driver was a drunk Trask agent, you know. Uh, so Jen's father ended up turning to his work as a policeman, Jen to her studies, uh, narrowly avoiding a deep depression by becoming the best at her schooling, and her and her father's relationship became extremely strained, made things very complicated when Jen became a Hulk. So I find it quite interesting now that they're both alive in this current timeline of the show. It does maybe think that Marvel is saving them to use in a probably sad arc later on. Now, as Bruce explains to Jen what happened over the last day or so, he tells her that while she got a lethal dose of gamma radiation, she isn't dying because the two of them share, I got this quoted, share a rare combination of genetic factors, is what he says, that allow them to synthesize the gamma radiation into, again, quote, something else, which I guess is like power or something. Um, but with Jen's blood, though, it seems to be a little bit different. The way her body synthesizes gamma, Bruce used it to heal his gauntlet-frimed arm completely, and it helped him get back to his full smart Hulk persona again. He also makes a show of incinerating her blood samples, which I can't help but feel is foreshadowing to someone getting a hold of either her or Bruce's blood and doing something nefarious with it later on. Maybe that's how we get the leader. Who knows? He does tell Jen that she can't use a device like the one that he had and broke because it was a prototype tuned to him specifically, so that's a no-go. Instead, he's going to train her himself. He thinks. He also thinks that it's going to take 15 years. No joke. Uh, but thankfully, Jen is not like him. They start the training with the spinny blades that we saw from the trailers, and after she hulks out and destroys it, she breaks down the door in his hulk-proof chamber and just leaves. Bruce immediately thinks that she's about to go nuts and starts trying to calm her down like someone would have previously done with him at one point. But Jen is just Jen, leaving Bruce in shock. She seems to be herself in this persona, which again only leaves me to believe that we're going to find out she actually 
is very different as She-Hulk versus as Jen Walters, or someone will mess with her and make her savage. I don't know, something. Still, Bruce needs to feed his need to teach people things and uh, be better than them at stuff, so he insists on doing some training with her still. Go training montage. We do get another mention of Sakaar when Bruce says uh, that one time that he was stuck in outer space for two years as the other guy, which is obviously referencing him being a gladiator on Sakaar, uh, so another little tease there. Bruce continues to do pretty much everything he can to scare Jen out of going back to her normal life, including giving her a killer hangover, but Jen remains to be fine. She proves it to him again and again until she finally just lays it out for him. She's going back to her life. She isn't like him. She isn't going to be a superhero. Again, this is just more foreshadowing. We get a big hold flight, blah blah blah, uh, they break the bar, they fix the bar, Jen goes home. Good. We are caught up now. So, back at the big case with Jen going against GKLA, GKL, ooh, GKL and H, Jen doesn't even have to, uh, doesn't even have a chance to properly start her statements to the jury before Titania comes busting through the walls. Possibly notably, Jen had just told us that one, the only ones who know uh, her secret are Bruce, her parents, us, and Nikki. So not anyone else in this courtroom. But here Titania comes busting in like she's looking for someone specific to fight in a courtroom with normal humans in an unrelated to her court case. This is clearly a setup. Jen gave or Nikki gave Jen a publicity stunt to play into. I can guarantee this. So yeah, Titania busts in. Nikki immediately and very enthusiastically goes to Jen to tell her to do her thing. She does not hesitate in any of this. Of course, Jen does, because this is a big deal. This is her big secret. There is no going back. Nikki knows that there isn't time to debate it, because she hired Titania to fight a new tough lady, the She-Hulk, and the She-Hulk needs to show up. Also in the trailer, Nikki says that Jen gets... Nikki... Get, Nikki says that she gets Jen the job at GLK and H. Um, and the H of that title is currently sitting in that courtroom watching all of this go down. So that's how Nikki gets her the job, by outing her as She-Hulk to everyone, basically. The fight is extremely brief, almost identical to their battle in Solo Avengers number 14, because surely Nikki sold Titania on all of this by making her think that she would win no question. But she's out in seconds, just like Jen's new secret. Or old secret, because it's not a secret anymore. <laughs> and of course, the post-credits scene, which takes us, takes us back to the island on Mexico or whatever it is, where Bruce has bored Jen so badly that she manages a to get him to tell her Sue Steve Rogers' first was by faking being wasted. Good job, Steve. We're proud of you. Uh, it does seem, based on this episode, that we're pretty much going to skip over the whole Savage Comics arc, which makes me suspicious that maybe we'll see elements of it pop up in her later appearances. Because again, when she first transforms, Jen has a hard time with it. The transformations are not only uncontrolled and triggered almost constantly, but they are incredibly painful for her, leaving her in a weak daze every time. That's why we eventually get Michael Morbius, the living vampire, 
who she encounters and ends up giving her what he was going to take for his vampirism, leaving him, I guess, without the ability to make more, but it pretty much saves Jen from being destroyed by her Hulk transformations, balancing her out to be able to transform more or less at will and without the incredible pain. They do say savage, though, um, towards the beginning of the episode. Nikki calls her the Savage Jen Walters, or rather says she has a Savage Jen Walters look. And again, this is after she becomes a Hulk, so I think that does technically make it an official Easter egg. And Nikki may not be imaginary, but she definitely set up Titania uh, into busting into their courtroom for Jen to fight as She-Hulk. I Again, she was way, way too enthusiastic for any of that to feel natural. The song featured in the end credits right after that fight is Who's That Girl by Eve, which is pretty fun to have in there. Um, And then I also found, the last thing I want to say, uh, I found this article from Variety, which you'll see linked below in the description. Um, And based on everything that they say in that, it sounds to me like the end of the series will have a different status quo from the beginning. Basically, they talk about how the most... um, most of the training and origin that we see for Jen in this first episode was meant to be held off on until episode eight, almost the end of the series. Then they say that in changing it to be at the beginning of the series, they had to go back and change the CGI drastically. What that tells me is that the way Jen looks at the end of the series is going to be different than she does at the beginning. So, fingers crossed that we get Jen in her savage form sometime soon. With that, that is the end of episode 76 of Sensational Shaky live from Yancey Street. Thank you very much for tuning in to whatever portion of the episode that you were able to do. Um, we are going to be back next week with episode 77. We'll be talking uh, comic book picks comic book polls for that week, um, the new Harley Quinn show episode from this week, as well as She-Hulk Attorney at Law episode two. If you enjoy the She-Hulk content, make sure you check out the She-Hulk special, as I'm calling it, the She-Hulk companion, which is going to be a very long podcast special that I'm going to post right after I post this one, um, and that is the August Yancey Street special, so be sure to check that out everywhere that podcasts are streaming. Until next time, I hope you guys have a fantastic week. Do things that you enjoy and uh, stand up for yourself.